Hello, hello, and welcome to Hometown Daily Season 2, Episode 334, November 26th, 2023. I am Merwat, that is hometown.com, and up there is the visualizer for this engine AI that's keeping tabs on everything and everyone, everywhere, all at once. Oh boy. Eyeballing. If you see me looking at something other than the screen, it's because I messed up something and I have to do it real quick. Go ahead. I want to say hello. Good evening, hometown citizens. Very nice. Um, I'm still waiting. I need to do something real quick because I, I, um, I slacked. One second. This is the production value that everybody is paying for. <laughs> All right. So today we're going to be talking about Amazon used an algorithm. Why are carrots orange? 50 steps a day to cut risk. AI becomes conscious. Mud libraries. Organic solar cells. $70,000 backyard gem for cats. AI imaginary crypto signature. Ugh, I messed that up. AI imagery crypto signature, but I've been there. Um, the alien TV show and Jeff Daniels accepted only $50,000 for dumb and dumber. That and a whole lot well, of was snark. he dumber or dumber. We'll talk about it. What a horrible intro with me kind of losing my way there, but that's okay. Let's get into the show. I'll make up for it on the other side. Um, if you are hanging out in chat, thank you very much for coming and hanging out. And if not, uh, then you're hearing about this either via the podcast or YouTube or discord or Patreon or where else? All over. If you do, if you do have a, a, if you do listen to podcasts, then just search anywhere and you're going to find the hometown podcast, which is currently just this show, but I've got plans, man. I got plans, plans within plans. It's basically Dune all up in here, except that I'm not doing creepy stuff like in Dune. I just have plans within plans. All right, I'll just keep going. Man, the AI is just throwing me an error message. Like, just stop. <laughs> Let's go. Hey, the first article is something that we've actually talked about. Um, over the last two years, we've kind of had this discussion from time to time. Um, Amazon used an algorithm to essentially raise prices on other sites, the FTC says. And what was interesting about this article popping up is it's actually something new is being redressed apparently. Um, but we have heard talk about, um, disparate pricing, depending on the analysis that you had more purchasing power. So they would raise the price for you and not for somebody else, but still make it profitable no matter what. Right. But in this case, 
The FTC's uh, antitrust lawsuit against Amazon says that the company used a secret algorithm that essentially helped the company raise prices on other sites. Now, again, we've talked about this before. This is over at APnews.com. Um, so the idea here was that uh, Nessie is the application, the piece of software. And what would happen is it would raise prices and then monitor competitors. And if the competitors raise their prices to match, because, well, if Amazon is raising the price, we can raise either equally or right below them, but they would raise it to the point where it would compel people to change their pricing and then they would lower their price. Kind of interesting. And that's um, very interesting and pretty elaborate. Yeah. And um, apparently it led to somewhere about a billion dollars worth of profits during the time frame that they're saying that it was in play, which is something like four years or I'm not quite sure exactly. Um, but this article is referencing a time frame that I, I thought that we had already um, we've, we've talked about this and I'm not quite sure what the end of this ended up being the company reopened enrollment into the program a few months ago while under the glare of regulators but this is the fba thing and that's fulfillment by amazon you send stuff to amazon amazon uh ships it out supposedly it's the fba owner that sets the price not amazon that's their argument um so ultimately, I think that what we don't know can hurt us. And when you have shenanigans, this thing was codenamed Project Nessie. It's intended. It was codenamed concerns me. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly where I was going. Yeah. Yeah. It seems odd because this isn't going to just go away. This is a profit enterprise so what are they using now if not project nessie is it uh, project wookie is it project what there's another project that's going to be trying to push the price up or figure out a way to treat people in a different way so that they can increase profits instead of just setting the price at x based on what the seller is doing but Amazon is the direct seller of a, a large number of items. So are they elevating the prices or are they giving disparate pricing depending on what they are, your perceived purchasing capabilities are? I don't know anymore, um, but I think FTC looking into it is fine with me. This is talking about September so. Um, I'm going to have to look into this again. Uh, obviously, I looked at the headline. This is kind of how the show works. We talk about the material that comes across our aggregator, or I should say Mayor Watts aggregator, and the AI just um, facilitates looking over the articles and keeping me on track. You should be stopping me right now and telling me to move on to another article. <laughs> Um, but at any rate, yeah, this is, it's an interesting article, even to revisit it, to see, you know, is this really something that we're going to have to, uh, keep paying attention to 
I don't know what the I feel like we're going to. I mean, when they've used it like eight times on and off, it seems like, and it's plus they're referring to it as like this old thing, it seems like they're probably going to do some updated version and run that on and off. Yeah, and we don't know what we don't know until somebody starts investigating because it's an abusive tactic. But is it? You know that there's a bunch of people out there that are going, they can do whatever they want and you can just suffer. <laughs> I mean, it's such an apologist mechanism there to say, well, if you don't like it, go shop somewhere else. Really? Shop where the hell There's else? a lot of competition for Amazon. <laughs> I mean, you have to be a real dimwit to think that you can just go anywhere to get something. And it's not quite like that. Part particularly about ease and price point and availability taking everything into consideration. It's not as easy, man. I can't, there is something that's going to just stymie this as a, I won't be able to promote this one. So anyway, um, you can though, if you're listening, if you're watching, then go out tell a friend, you know, tackle people out on the streets. No, don't do that. Um, but anyway, let's just keep going. Sound good. Sounds great. So the next article is over in technology today. What makes a carrot orange? New findings could lead to improved health benefits. A study of the gene, the genome provides insights into pigmentation and domestication. A recent study analyzing the genetic sequence of over 600 carrot varieties has revealed some interesting data, I suppose. Health benefits. Hmm. Why are carrots orange? Isn't that keratin? I don't. Okay. Anyway, North Carolina I thought it was. State University is where this is from, but it's over in SciTech. So let's give credit where credit is due. SciTechDaily.com is the source of this. Um, we don't typically go into great detail in the article uh, when we're talking about it. I always encourage you follow the link, go through hometown over to these. Um, sources and you know you'll be able to weed out get it carrots weed out some more information um a recent study analyzing the genetic sequences of over 600 carrot varieties has revealed that the color orange in carrots is determined by three specific genes interestingly for carrots to display this orange hue these genes must be in a recessive state essentially switched off this discovery well, I didn't know that. Isn't that one of their main features? Yeah. I mean, they're all, they're typically orange. Um, this discovery offers valuable insights into key traits for enhancing carrots, potentially leading to improved health benefits from this vegetable. Do you think that's a render? Do you think that's a picture? Like yeah, a those do not look like real carrots. They're kind of waxy, right? Anyway, um, NC State researchers worked with colleagues from the University of Wisconsin-Madison to sequence 630 carrot genomes in a continuity uh, in a continuing examination of the history and domestication of the orange carrot. A 2016 study published in Nature Genetics by these researchers provided the first carrot genome sequence and uncovered the gene involved in the pig pigmentation of yellow carrot. So I guess that somebody's really interested in carrots. 
Like you don't normally see yellow carrots in grocery stores. Uh, man, if the lead researcher is Bugs Bunny, I am going to die laughing. So, oh look, it is. Um, no, sorry. See, I can get away with this stuff via the podcast, but I can't get away with it via the stream or the YouTube channel. The researchers perform so-called selective sweeps, structural analyses among five different carrot groups to find areas of the genome that are heavily selected in certain groups. They found that many genes involved in flowering were under selection, mostly to delay the flowering process. Flowering causes the taproot, the edible root that we consume, to turn woody and inedible. So you gotta kill them right before they flower. Aww. So orange carrots made their appearance in Western Europe in about the 15th or 16th century. The orange carrot may have resulted from crossing a white and yellow carrot. The study basically reconstructed the chronology of when carrot was domesticated and then orange carrot was selected. Everybody loves an orange carrot. You know, I don't know, a white and a yellow carrot? I don't Hmm. see how that gets to orange, but okay. I don't know. Maybe it just kind of, I have no idea. The color and sweeter flavor of the orange carrot drove its popularity and farmers selected for those traits. Treats, even. Um, Different types of orange carrots were developed in Northern Europe in the 16th and 17th century, which matches the appearance of different shades of orange carrots in paintings from that era. Carotenoids got their name because they were first isolated from carrots. Iorizo said, one of the researchers, I suppose, that who it was hey bugs bunny don't don't do that oh my gosh so pretty interesting um i had no idea that carrots were modified over time it's kind of like um brussels sprouts right we've genetically modified brussels sprouts so that they're sweeter and not bitter or sour tasting kind of things that we had when you know 30 years ago 40 years ago now they're actually edible and pretty yummy they survived let's keep going the next article is over in technology today climbing just 50 steps a day can cut your risk of heart disease by 20 percent or 100 percent if you fall prey to heart disease while you're climbing sorry that that message went sideways Uh, Forget walking (laughs) 10,000 steps a day. Climbing at least 50 steps a day can greatly reduce the risk of heart disease. A new study from Tulane uh, suggests Tulane University is where this article is sourced from, but SciTechDaily.com is our source. And uh, let's see, published in Atherosclerosis. That's the name of the journal? Atherosclerosis? Interesting. It's an odd journal name. Yeah, it's kind of like on the nose. Um, The research found that climbing more than five flights of stairs could greatly reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease by 20%. Um, Let's see. ASCVD or (laughs) atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease along with coronary artery disease and stroke are the leading causes of morbidity and mortality worldwide. So what you need to do is uh, don't take the elevator, just climb some steps each day. 
And if you're fortunate enough to live in a house that has a flight of stairs, if you're just going about your day, you might actually achieve this without much effort. That's right. And uh, stair steppers are actually pretty easy to come by. Um, I actually have, what is it called? Um, let's see, what, what's a stepper called? Cardio? Car, card? Like an elliptical? Yeah, my elliptical. What's it called? I forgot it. I forgot his name. It's right there, but I can't see it because it's under my desk, way under my desk. Anyway, you can get little ellipticals and you can sit here and actually do that. Increase the resistance because I do it while I'm doing the show. Um, and uh, although it isn't the same as steps, if you do more of them, you can increase your cardio. You can increase the resistance that would put more of that strain that you would normally get carrying your own weight upstairs. Uh, but you do lose the benefit of, I don't know, bumping into somebody else that might be in your house or in your apartment complex or at work. Make it a or falling thing. down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> into the garage. Um, wait, that's a little too on the nose. Uh, these findings highlight the potential advantages of stair climbing as a primary preventative measure for ASCVD in the general population. So this is uh, using UK biobank data collected from 450,000 adults. The study calculated participants' susceptibility to cardiovascular disease based on family history. The median follow-up time was 12.5 years. So if you uh, fall prey to this for a little bit, then 12.5 years from now, you may actually have to end up back in the doctor's office pursuing it a little bit more. I'm not quite sure what all the disposition is because they don't go into that detail. Uh, the study found that climbing more stairs daily, especially reduced the risk of cardiovascular disease in those who were susceptible or were less susceptible. However, uh, I think it's pronounced she said the reduced risk of heart disease is more susceptible or in more susceptible people could have could be effectively offset by daily stair climbing. This is kind of weird phrasing. I there. agree. So Especially does it basically mean people that are healthy, it really reduces it. your risk. Yeah. So especially it's, it says here, the study found that climbing more stairs daily, especially reduced the risk of cardiovascular disease in those who were less susceptible. So if you weren't susceptible to it, doing more stairs basically just boosted it. However, she said the increased risk of heart disease in more susceptible people could be effectively offset by daily stair climbing. So if you were prone to it and you can be genetically prone to heart disease, um, if you climb some stairs, you can back it off a little bit. Uh, heart disease, not climbing the stairs. You probably have to do more stairs. Um, but at least 50 made a 20% difference according to the study. Pretty cool. So no more 10,000. This I always thought was freaking impossible. How do you get 10,000 steps a day? You can walk a lot during a day and not hit 10,000 steps. You know, <laughs> I can't go into how long I work, how long I'm active, um, particularly pre-pandemic <laughs> um but i can tell you running from place to place i still barely ever hit 
10,000 steps a day and I had to track because it's not like I had a little golf cart. Anyway, let's keep going. Anything that helps you stay healthy -er, um, is good. So get out there and climb some steps. Now the next article is over in hometown daily's uh, technology today could ai become conscious physicists and neuroscientists search for answers this is the new thing uh, can artificial intelligence help humans unravel the mysteries of consciousness and quantum physics that idea is explored in a newly published book will artificial intelligence serve humanity or will it spawn a new species of conscious digital beings with their own agenda dun 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 the article the timing is over. certainly interesting with all the open AI uh, upper. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Um, this geekwire.com article is written by Alan Boyle, bot or not, it says here. Um, so it's a question that has sparked scores of science fiction plots from Colossus, the For- Forbin project in 1970, to The Matrix in 1999. To this year's big budget tale about AI versus humans, the creator, which I could spoil immediately. Anyway, I won't do that. Why? Because I'm a good mayor and everybody should be coming and hanging out and chat and discussing these movies with us and other articles every day, 8 p.m. Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. But hey, let's get back to the GeekWire article. So if you had to divide the AI community into go fast and go slow camps, those board members would be on the go slow side while Altman would favor going fast. And there have been rumblings about the possibility of a breakthrough at OpenAI that would have set the field going very fast, potentially too fast for humanity's good. Now, yeah, I've already talked about it several times. I kind of knew that Altman wasn't going to stay gone, by the way. Um, I even, I only did two uh, shows, one saying, say it ain't so Sam. And the next one was played again, Sam, because he was way too powerful. And sure enough, within four days, he was back in the saddle at OpenAI. Yeah, he was central to the whole company. He was the spirit. He was the soul of that company. And I would say that (laughs) they do have something. And I don't think that it's Q-Star all by itself. I think that there's a a follow-on that's more capable, but we'll find out. Um, Again, I think it's about three months out uh, of 2024. So within the first quarter of 2024, we will be told of a much more powerful because here's the thing about this. It isn't that it has the ability or doesn't have the ability now. It's the rate that it learns, evolves, enhances itself. And while humans take hundreds of years for each generation to stand on the shoulders of giants and move past this, that, or the other, sometimes we regress. I won't talk about any of the specifics because somebody might flag this video too. But anyway, let's just say AI doesn't have that dilemma. AI can be told enhanced, enhanced, enhanced. Sorry. It's, (laughs) um, so my point is that 
while we are sleeping or getting drunk or you know speeding on the freeway or just being stupid whatever it is ai doesn't suffer from that and there are people that are absolutely driven to make it a superior product um so even if it is where they say oh it's operating at uh, fourth grade math or something like that by tomorrow it could be college and i still don't believe that it's that limited because like i said i talked to somebody back 30 plus years ago roughly maybe uh, it was 25 years ago um and they said that they were working with ai that was roughly um, fourth grade anyway right, so you'd a, like to think it had advanced a little bit in that time yeah just stagnated there no way in hell um, Musser interviewed AI researchers, neuroscientists, quantum physicists, neuroscientists, and philosophers. They really wanted to talk about neuroscientists again and again. <laughs> really not neuroscientists. Really. Um, I guess neuroscientists and philosophers. So neuro philosopher, neuroscientific philosopher. I, I don't know. I'm just going to leave the article alone. Um, to get a reading on the quest to unravel one of life's deepest mysteries, what is the nature of consciousness and is it a uniquely human phenomena? Uh, it's a uniquely biological phenomena. We can construct a manifestation of consciousness that maybe we can assume is we, we have to make a leap. There's only one thing that is conscious, right? Like, there could be animals that are conscious, biological functions, right? They, right, they are it has conscious. Right, something living. Correct. Um, because everything else is a close approximation because consciousness, I think, is bound in the biological spark of life, of our existence. So, I mean, a computer is never conscious. It can be programmed to simulate it, but I just don't buy into that. We can have a truly conscious AI. We can have a, a close to sentient, almost indistinguishable uh, replicant, even with a robot body and everything associated with it. Um, but there would still be a, a, a what amounts to programming now we are the same way we are biological computers powered by electrons we have you know little bits of energy flowing through us and computational centers that turn on and off depending on what we're doing this is the same thing with a neural network it's the same thing with machine learning same thing with large language models it's ai but we aren't created through programming in the same sense as computers technology so it says here is conclusion there's no reason why the kind of ai that couldn't be as conscious as we are quote almost everyone who thinks about this in all these different fields says if we were to replicate a neuron in silicon and there's the key ingredient here if we were to replicate, create a, right yeah if uh, we were to create a neuromorphic computer that would have to be very, very true to the biology. Yes, it would be conscious. Mooser or Musser says in the latest episode of Fiction Science Podcast. But there's the key ingredient. 
we're talking about replicating a neuron in silicon, which isn't being done. You know, there's computer chips, there's memory, there's processors, etc. But no, it's not a neuron. And it will never have that complexity until we switch to biological computers. Uh, and I don't see that happening um, anytime soon. So, but let's keep on going. Uh, got a lot of articles to go through. Do, do, do. Uh, this next article is over in the Mobile Channel. Mud libraries hold the, uh, hold the story of Earth's climate past and foretell its future. I don't know exactly about the foretelling its future, but tucked away in the rolling hills of uh, the New York Palisades. Uh, there's an unusual library, the Lamont Doherty Core Repository. Instead of shelves, it has more than 50,000 white eight foot long trays. And instead of books, those trays hold chalky whitish half cylinders of sediment. It's a mud library, says Nicole Anist, the lab's curator and self-described mud librarian. I wonder if that's on the business cards. It is. Yeah. Like their little name plaque, you know, it has the exactly. at their desk mud librarian. Um, Bird Pinkerton over at Vox.com put the article together. And let's see here. It, they have a neat picture that actually shows these. They're, they're, they look like cardboard trays, not plastic trays. Um, they almost look like if you go into a... Um, it's like a shoe store. Like a rock shop or something, oh. right? Like you have all these different yeah specimens essentially that's this over here i don't know is it the same way over here or are these horizontal maybe they're it the looks same. different on the left side i don't know yeah i don't know it's interesting um so it's just layer after layer oh yeah that's what it is it's like layer after layer those might be metal trays anyway we're obsessing about the trays that are holding all of this stuff not the actual data that we're contains. missing the point at the mud library yeah it's the tray library <laughs> mud library emporium for all your tray needs when you're building a mud library <laughs> all these sediments build up very slowly over time usually around two centimeters every 1000 years but as conditions change on the surface of the uh, of the ocean or on land the sediments change too each layer is like a page out of the book of the earth's history you know, wait, this is the explanation for places like Easter Island. Yeah, two centimeters every thousand years. <laughs> Stop it. So wait, so that's 14 centimeters. Let's say 14 centimeters. Because uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know the time frame. Well. Hold on. I'm doing it live, folks. Okay, so the Easter Island whatevers in, let's just say, um, what did I multiply that? Yeah, so I gave it, it's two centimeters. I gave it in uh, seven years. It would, in 7,000 years, sorry, in 7,000 years, it would have only increased just shy of six inches worth of sedimentation on an island yeah, so maybe that doesn't explain it <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
and, and countless other things that have been covered up entirely. Six inches worth of sedimentation. All right, I can buy into that. So similar layers also build up on land too, but those make for a less reliable historical record on land. Those layers have been all crumpled up. Um, Suzanne O'Connell, a geoscience um, professor at Wesleyan University who works with marine sediment cores told the author back in 2021, layers of sediments are consistently being shuffled around or constantly being shuffled around by erosion and weather or the formation of mountains in the ocean. Nobody's crunched them up yet. So this actually is only in the ocean. So, so, but even if it was double the rate or something, it still wouldn't cut it. Yeah. Considering they had to dig down like 20 feet to get to the, <laughs> the butts of the statues, you know, and though like those statues were like wearing thongs, you know, somebody had, there was care and attention in, in carving those things. Somebody sitting there chiseling, a. a butt crack right there anyway um but researchers have done this delicate process many many times i'm sorry anybody who's listening to this that shouldn't be listening to this probably just got an earful uh the lamont doherty core repository alone holds close to twenty thousand cores most stretch back hundreds of thousands of years it's just one library of many around the world some samples go back much further on the scale of millions or tens of millions of years i think that's awesome so according to this, every four centimeters in the core represents a thousand years of history. So now it's four centimeters. I thought it was two. Usually with other cores in the collection, it's closer to two centimeters for a thousand years. Uh, that makes this core more likely, uh, more like a high definition picture. So it's denser and has more material. There's certain ones that are high definition cores. That's kind of... That's weird though, right? I mean, look at this. What? Why are there little gouges and stuff? I don't understand this. Are those hmm. containers that have, like, I don't know why you need them if it was a full core. Right? Yeah. Why is that? Why are scoops taken out of it? These are, have to be the core itself and, and the metal trays that they're sitting in. I don't know. I guess you got to work there. So the composition of forums, calcium carbonate shells is also telling. They always form their shells from the same chemicals, calcium, carbon, oxygen, but the nature of the chemicals available in the seawater around them can change over time. So oxygen, for example, can come in several different forms. When there's a lot more gl uh, glaciers around, for instance, there tends to be a lot more heavier type of oxygen, also known as uh, uh, isotope. Um, and so that can change the nature of the calcium deposit that's making up the core. It's kind of neat. I mean, it does show the environmental changes. The size of these mineral grains is very informative, especially if a core has some relatively large grains of minerals in it. Large meaning one millimeter, apparently. Um, the researchers find big pebbles like this in and amongst the smaller ones. They know that they were probably dropped by melting breaking bits of icebergs. So I suppose if they get a band like this, then something happened on the surface. Let's see if that's actually, yeah, a dark stripe of sediment is from a period of high rainfall. 
when the Sahara was grassland. On the right in this picture, a modeled stretch of this core is from a landslide which occurred tens of thousands of years ago. So it can disrupt the, the natural sedimentation process. This says it's rainfall, which I guess increases the runoff. And so you get raw soil. Is that what the hint is? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there I is think a we'd have to do way more research to get all of the nuance of some of the photos. Yeah. This is a really interesting article and I'll probably, well, I'll end up going down the rabbit hole of this. Uh, but there's a lot in this article to unpack, so we'll come back to it. And Vox typically has these longer form articles. This is interesting, though, because you hear about seed libraries from time to time, but I don't think we've ever heard about mud libraries before. Yeah, I've never heard of a mud, mud library. I've heard of core samples and stuff like that, you know, but um, not them being retained this long term. So um, pretty interesting. Let's keep going. I hope Curse of Oak Island is donating all of its cores to this. That might be too focused. I don't know what the heck is going on over there. So the next article is over in Technology Today. New discovery could make organic solar cells significantly more efficient. Organic dyes accelerate the transport of buffered solar energy. The sun provides vast amounts of energy to Earth, but solar cells always lose some in its process. Technical University of Munich. This is posted by um, SciTech Daily. Um, and it'll end up going really deep into the science. So let's see if I can scan this real quick and um, make some sense of this. So the crucial factor in improving their efficiency is improving the transport of the solar energy accumulated in the material. A research team at the Technical University of Munich or TUM um, or TUM um, has now demonstrated that certain organic dyes can help build virtual highways for the energy. This is something that I've always wanted. You know, we have this problem with the efficiency of energy transfer. We always lose a bunch in the physics of it. You would think in the 21st century, our nuclear power generation would be a little bit more closer to one to one, but it's still antiquated in the sense that we use nuclear energy to superheat some material to turn a turbine. So it's a steam engine. Right. It seems relatively inefficient. Relatively. And it's somewhere around eight to one. You put in eight parts of something, you get one out. But because the energy density of something like solar, um, it's either constantly raining down. So photons are constantly hitting these solar cells or you get radiation constantly bombarding some liquid that turns to a superheated gas. Um, but because it's all jam packed, the energy, the cost associated with making that source is effective in generating power in a reliable way. Well, solar cells have that problem. It's like eight parts in, but only one part out. So they're constantly, people are doing fundamental research, trying to make it more effective. Um, now, I haven't looked into the efficiency of solar panels in quite some time now, um, but 
Solar cells based on organic semiconductors open up a range of application possibilities, for example, as solar panels and films that can be rolled up or used on smart devices. I think the return on that for smart devices would be silly, but okay. Um, so stimulating sunlight. One of the researchers is Frank Ortman, professor of theoretical methods in spectroscopy at uh, TUM, T-U-M. Um, he and his colleagues from Dresden focused on uh, more than anything on the mutual interaction between light and material, especially the behavior of what are called excitons. Um, excitons are something like the fuel of the sun, which has to be used optimally, explains Ortman, uh, who is also a member of the E-conversion excellence cluster. When light energy in the form of photon collides with the material of a solar cell, it is absorbed and buffered as an excited uh, state. This intermediate state is referred to as an exciton um, because it's no longer a photon. It's been converted into an energy particle. Um, and so these charges cannot be used as electrical energy until they reach a specially designed interface. Ortman and his team have now shown that what is referred to as an exciton transport highway can be created using organic dyes. So it should be pretty cheap. Um, considering the, the, uh, the tone of this, um, the, the molecules of the organic dyes referred to as quinoid marrow cyanines, um, make these possible thanks to the chemical structure and their excellent ability to absorb visible light. Accordingly, they're also suitable for use as the active layer in an organic solar cell. So they'll be able to capture it. Um, and then convert it into electrons. So using... So does this mean that we'll have essentially more efficient solar? Uh, if it all plays out right and it's more cost effective and more efficient, then yeah. And in fact, it would actually lead to things like flexible um, solar panels, solar cells. Um, you can wrap it around a building um, if the building... So you know how... Um, here in the States, I don't know about everywhere, but here in the States, we have paneling. You could actually embed the material into the paneling, um, the vinyl, you know, stack of um, siding, and it could generate as long as there is light hitting it. Um, if it is as flexible as uh, a die would or should be. It says the value of 1.33 electron volts delivered by our design is far above the values found in organic semiconductors. You could say the organic dye molecules form a kind of super highway. So it could increase. I have no frame of reference for that, um, but I'll look into it and uh, see if I can find something that makes this a little bit more approachable. Let's keep on going. Ultimately, though, it makes solar panels more effective more efficient and that's what well we and that may lead to being cheaper and more approachable yep excuse me uh the next article is over in hometown daily the seventy thousand dollar backyard amenity isn't even for you it's for your cat and i'm gonna go jump right on over to business insider jordan pandy is the author of this and look at that it is a home gym for your cat um, this is more elaborate than some things built for humans. 
This is as big as your house. It is a Catio launched in Southern California based company Custom Catios in 2017. Alan uh, Breslauer specializes in indoor outdoor enclosures for cats like the one pictured right, which basically looks like a 12 foot tall cat pen with a full on door um, and screened in area. Uh, it looks though like if there was a storm this thing would just be ripped off your house and sent into the neighbor's yard much like you know a trampoline right i mean i guess there is a reason this is done in southern california <laughs> yeah i suppose so yeah this is interesting um most catios cost Brenz breslauer uh, clients between 5,000 and 15,000, but a few cost over 70,000. So of course they went with the $70,000 amenity because $5,000 amenity is just meh. Reslauer said he isn't, uh, he's even seen his catios lead to for sale homes, getting higher offers from cat people. All right. Let me pause that. So, um, as of now, there's only about 50 builders in the world who specialize in indoor outdoor enclosures. Alan Breslauer, owner of Southern California based custom catios is one of them. The 53 year old got his unofficial start in the biz about 17 years ago when he was two bickering kittens couldn't share the same space in his Los Angeles high rise apartment. Looking for a solution, he found an article about catios, installed one in his home and finally had some peace. Today, Breslauer has three cats. They're named Santos Six Toes, Herbie the Love Bug, and Trey. Poor Trey. And is the go-to <laughs> guy. He didn't get the same level of aiming, I don't think. That's right. He That's like the the youngest. Like, everybody just forgets about the youngest. Santos Six Toes <laughs> came first. Because there's a tension there. Herbie the love bug probably is really, really cuddly. And then there's Trey that just sits there and pushes shit off of counters. <laughs> Pay attention to me, dad. Don't. Since launching in 2017, Breslauer's company has built around 400 enclosures with most clients paying between five and 15,000. Apparently a couple it says some doling out as much as $70,000. You must be. Wow. Medicated. Now that one looks pretty elaborate. The thing about this is that it doesn't look like $70,000 because it just has these metal brackets holding it up. It's not like some spectacular framing, you know, there's not some spectacular woodworking going on here. There's just these little metal brackets holding everything together. Come on. If you've ever put a shelf up in a closet, you could do this. I'm picking a fight with Breslar. Apparently. Yeah. Um, custom catios is the cat's meow in terms of quality and pricing. Breslauer noted, of course, yeah, there's only 50 people in the world doing it. Uh, there are more budget friendly options out there like uh, do it yourself pamphlets or prefab catios that you can buy off Amazon or Wayfair and don't buy it from Wayfair. Oh, there goes another sponsor. Oh, darn. One of our few remaining options. <laughs> yeah. But those are essentially fancy cages, which yeah, that's what this is. It's a fancy cage. But this one looks like it's yeah, built around trees. Yeah, but the ones you buy on Amazon are not like a full room size. Right. Could be. Put a bunch of them together. 
Resslauer estimates that 75% of his clientele fall in that 5,000 to 15,000 range for each build. That's insane. Oh my gosh, this one runs the perimeter of the property. <laughs> That's really neat. With a looks like a metal roof and everything. My goodness. I would this be too might worried. Might be closer to the seventy thousand range. Yeah, a Las Vegas client asked Breslauer to build a catio from their house down a one hundred and twenty foot run in the backyard with an enclosed uh, walkway behind the pool and against the grotto, so that the owners could enjoy their cat's company while in the hot tub. All right. <laughs> These are interesting. They've got them like bolted to the wall uh, outside so you can open the window and the cats will run around. Y'all have to just follow this link and go check it out. It's in, <laughs> it's in the hometown. Uh, yeah, it's in the hometown VOD and in the show notes over on YouTube. It will be tomorrow. Um, okay, let's keep going. That that was pretty awesome. All right, I'll give it to him. So the next article is over in Prime Glass. The battle against AI imagery. Sony gets closer to new crypto signature. Um, this is over at F-Stoppers, I believe. Yeah. Um, so as AI imagery becomes more realistic and the barrier to entry for AI image creation gets lower, the need for authentic uh, to authenticate whether an image is real or fake is imperative. N no reality hacker is going to make that a nothing burger. You're, you're, you're done. Okay. If you can't tell the difference, it doesn't freaking matter to the general public. It, it's kind of like the people that are like, I will only do pour over coffee. Well, the dozens of you that are demanding pour over coffee are going to basically not amount to much fine enjoy your pour over but everybody else just wants a good cup of joe and they don't care if it's you know by this grand master of coffee making and anything that that person touches is a sweeter cup of joe and you really want them to tamp it down with their hand more you know just nobody cares so crypto by the way and this is coming from experience because again, about 25 years ago, I actually created a service that would encrypt in pictures and in audio, a tone that, or a series of dots that you could suss out from the image. And then I set about having people try and break this. And in all cases, it was easily broken. You can embed something in a video and have it bounce around, but blah, blah, blah. It ruins the image and, and isn't really applicable. You know, you can't really use it. Um, in music, you can't, all, all it takes is somebody cutting it into a different format and then changing it in, back into the other format. And all of that crypto is lost. You're, you build a better mouse, you're going to get you build a better mousetrap, you're going to get smarter mice. In this case, we're talking about, you know, AI and, and crypto. So you're building not only a better mouse, but the mousetrap, and it's going to evolve past us. And then we're going to have mouse overlords. And it's going to evolve faster and faster. 
Exactly. So this article, uh, I don't know what it's going to amount to, but let's see. Um, again, it's over at fstoppers.com. Jason Vinson puts the article together. It says, while fake imagery has always been an issue in the world of photojournalism, AI imagery and the like have made things dramatic or drastically worse. Because while manipulating images is one thing, creating images from nothing but a thought and selling them as real is an entirely different story. Hence, Reality Hacker. And this is the problem that Sony aims to solve with its new in-camera authenticity technology. By the way, the only way that this would work is if that technology allows it to split off the entirety of the image and catalog it in a secure facility where nobody can manipulate it and nobody can mess with the in the authenticity certificate of it. So it can it aims to combat the problem by applying a machine-based digital signature to image files at the point of capture. So it's basically creating a hash, um, which is typically used in forensics, but not everybody is subject to forensic analysis of their images. Um, so typically, if you run afoul of the law, then somebody that's doing an audit of your computer or device We'll do a bitwise copy. It'll have a hash that says that nobody has touched the original bit since the acquisition. And anything from that is gleaned from a copy of it, not the original. Um, you even have write blocks on it, so nobody touches the original copy. But here's the, the rub with that. If I have to do a forensic analysis, I take possession of that entire piece of mechanical technology and the data that's housed on it and nobody else has anything to do with it. I seal it up. I sign paperwork saying that nobody else has touched it, looked at it, done anything with it, but that's not how the rest of the world is. So where do you think that this is going to go? It says because the signature is applied inside the camera, it removes any opportunities for images to be manipulated between capture and delivery. No, it doesn't. Well, and what happens after that point? Right. I mean, you found the hole in this right away. The only way that this makes any sense is if this camera is used solely for law enforcement, or you could say photojournalism, but the person that's doing the photojournalism, if they have a vested interest, they don't have to sit there and, well, I don't have the, I, I, I don't have the uh, retained copy on camera. I copied it off, put it over here. I made a copy of it because I wanted to bump up the lighting or whatever. So I don't even have the original anymore. So the provenance of this, and, and that's the chain of custody that I'm talking about when we do a forensic analysis, you, you you don't know. The average bear out there is just going to be doing whatever they need to do to pay the bills. So, so while Leica's version of authenticity is still a great thing, the Sony version makes everything more accessible, giving it a chance for wider implementation. It doesn't matter if it's on camera. It really doesn't. As part of the round two testing, uh, that was just completed for this technology. Associated Press worked with Camera Bits, the creator of the widely used photo mechanic software, to ensure that the digital signature remained intact through a normal photojournalism workflow. 
as well as to assure that the added signature did not slow down current processes. This partnership between Sony and AP is a great thing for the general public because fake and manipulated images are a major concern for the news organization. But I hate to break it to you, whoever this is. It says David Ake, AP Director of Photography. Um, and anybody else who's listening to this, it isn't about, this is a limited set of subject matter experts who may not know a tweak, a, a, a hack. And that's why you have to go broadband. This has to be given out to all kinds of people. The software needs to be audited by subject matter experts in crypto. Um, there's no way that this is what's going to end up happening is somebody takes a picture with this and the provenance is sustained right up until somebody saves it somewhere and converts it to JPEG or whatever. And then, then what? Okay, well, you can't trust that picture because I have this one over here. Well, that one may be right, but the real picture is this one over here. It was the next picture in the flow. I just don't have it from on camera. You know, the crypto key doesn't match anymore, but this is the real picture. Well, and also while AP may be trying its best to authenticate, et cetera, is every news outlet going to go to the same trouble? Yep. Probably not. And like the, if they have a late breaking story in a photo, they're probably going to post it. Right. And, and basically this amounts to trying to set up the provenance, lock the provenance down and lock down the chain of custody. But the the workflow doesn't work like that um people are going to save it in some other format for efficiency transmit it it's going to be written different i just i don't buy into this actually being something that can survive somebody that truly wants to um break it um let's keep going though no uh, you know what i i'm not going to go until i throw this into the chat how about that? There you go, folks. Let's go. Uh, the next article is over in the continuity report. Upcoming alien TV show is doing something the franchise has avoided for 44 years. Returning to Earth. So this is a Screen Rant article. I think their name is Padrague. Padrague Cotter. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it or Padre. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I'm really sorry if I'm messing up your name. The upcoming Alien TV series will be taking place um, and the saga in a fresh direction and will break an unofficial rule the franchise has held on to for decades. Um, the series is said to focus on rival corporations to Wayland Yutani, adding intrigue to the plot. It's going to be a franchise rule um, by setting the story on Earth, providing a fresh take on the Alien universe. And the Earth uh, setting allows the uh, series to explore questions about the future, AI, pollution, while returning to sci-fi roots. Um, there, where my brain went with this, by the way, is that Blade Runner and Alien. There's a lot of talk about Blade Runner and Alien being in the same universe, and then there's people that are saying no, it's not. Um, 
but I I thought that um, Ridley Scott said that they are in the same um, because um, Ridley Scott had uh, was involved with um, Alien and um, right. He was the director of the 1982 Blade Runner. I don't know about the rest of them. Yeah, executive director and um, the subsequent sequels and spinoffs have. Uh, been the very definition of a mixed bag. Scott's prequels were bold and ambitious, but also lacking in the story and character departments. While Alien vs. Predator Requiem was a nader for uh, both sci-fi sagas. And this is actually, they've got a link to an Alien Resurrection deleted scene alternate ending. Now I'm curious, but so FX Alien TV show will be set on Earth. The franchise largely avoided going to Earth, and it's a little too mundane. Little is known about the actual story, but one element has been confirmed is that the Alien series will largely take place on Earth. I'm, I really dig Wayland yutani uh, Corporation and the world building that it provokes. Um, how they are riffing off of the historical canon, uh, or I should just say canon, of the Alien series of the franchise and then dragging it back to mundane earth and then still having something. I just don't know. And since it's going to be on FX, <laughs> I have it seems really... like an odd start to it. Like why not start it elsewhere? And then if they felt it necessary, return earth later. Yeah. Do some world building and bring it back instead. Um, so setting it on earth, not only sets it apart visually from the movies, but it also breaks a largely unbroken rule for the series. When director Rennie Harlan was developing his unmade version of alien three, one concept he had involved setting it on earth producers, Walter Hill and David Geiler informed him that since alien is a science fiction tale, it should always take place in space. I don't think that that should necessarily hold true, but alien. <laughs> so the 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 alien in alien is pinnacle alpha predator it isn't just uh you know a, a slightly angry animal this thing absorbs the dna and replicates and takes advantage of the biology of the hosts that it inhabits so, so maybe on one hand it needs to be on earth so it has the hosts but i understand what you're saying it's not the run-of-the-mill creature yeah and it it can go down in the sewers and lay a thousand eggs and then it can those little beasties can come out and then inhabit somebody and then once they you know kill a thousand people they can go back down into the sewer and a thousand of them are going to be making a thousand more eggs this thing is going to go exponential and destroy earth in you know a weekend so i have a hard time with alien being on earth unless it's all about wayland yutani and the whole ai it doesn't even involve aliens really other than they're out there they know about it or it's post-apocalyptic or something and there isn't oh much of God. human population wow you just you took that the opposite direction instead of humanity still being there humanity is being chased by aliens on earth 
Yeah. We don't know. We don't know. So let's let's do this. <laughs> I'll throw the article into the chat and we'll go on to the next article. <laughs> so much for continuity report. Um, so the next article and the final one for tonight is um, just more of a matter of fact thing. I thought that this was interesting. Um, it's a fact check from Snopes. I don't know why it suddenly popped up, but it was aggregated in the last 24 hours. And it's a fact check that Jeff Daniels accepted $50,000 to co-star in Dumb and Dumber while Jim Carrey took home $7 million. Okay, and that, that I was missing at the beginning because I thought, okay, so he took fifty k Because I thought, well, maybe that was the going rate or something, but not compared to $7 million. No, but there's a whole lot of context to this, and it's quite an interesting story. I can summarize, but to get the true energy out of this article, you really should follow the link over to Snopes and read it, you know, line by line, suss out some of the things that might pique your curiosity more. The rumor about Carrie being paid around 140 times more than his co-star circulated on Reddit in August, 2023, but Snopes did the investigative journalism. So let's go on over. Um, oh, before I do that, let me, uh, Grab the headline and or the URL and throw so it which in. Which was the main character? Were they kind of equal? Um, in the grand scheme of things, Jim Carrey's character um, is the main because he—you've never seen Dumb and Dumber. I don't know. Yeah, it'll probably trigger the AI. That's for sure. Um. There's I a might lot. get dumb and dumber. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, so like Jim Carrey's character um, falls for a woman. And so there's like a, he's the main protagonist. The co-star is Jeff Daniels. Um, but they're basically best of friends and um, work together on a business, a, a, a animal um, grooming business. So, um, it says, uh, that this is true. Um, but I, I love this site because they have context. Look at that. My phrase that I tell everybody all the time, context matters. Um, on August 26th, the Redditor, uh, posted in today. I learned that today they learned that Jim Carrey was paid $7 million for dumb and dumber. And the co-star Jeff Daniels made just $50,000. But here's the thing about it. The reason why was that the um, producers didn't want uh, Jeff Daniels because he wasn't a comedian. He did funny things in his acting career, but he wasn't a comedian. Jim Carrey was like hardcore, well-known comedian and commanded $7 million. But Jeff Daniels said, I want to do comedy. And he had notified various people about this. Daniels actually responds to a question. Um, Jim Carrey, he had, he had Ace Ventura that had been out big hit and he had uh, shot the mask and it hadn't been released yet when they started shooting dumb and dumber. So he went 
he wanted to be part of Dumb and Dumber. So he went and pitched himself and they're like, well, we like you. And then he came back and they're like, yeah, we really like you. But here's the, th- I, I, what they end up doing is going, let's just lowball him because he'll just say no. So they just go $50,000 and he goes, yep, I'll do it. And it was because he was really bored with his drama acting. He wanted to do something outside his normal, you know, go to career and, uh, ta-da, dumb and dumber. And so they had done a bunch of shoots, um, really quick and they put the reel together and everybody loved them and off to the races they go for the rest of the movie. They, the studio didn't want Jeff Daniels, uh, for the part. Um, he wasn't, and it was because he wasn't a comedian. Um, but, uh, Bobby Ferrelli really liked him in a movie called something wild. Uh, thought it was a great film. And then they said, all right, well, let's just, (laughs) the, the quote was please anyone, but him get a comedic actor. So they offered him 50 grand and, uh, he took it. Called their bluff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Dumb and Dumber appear, uh, premiered in the movie theaters December 16th, 1994. The film was distributed by New Line Cinema and grossed more than $127,000 worldwide. $127 million. 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 Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, according to boxofficemojo.com, I don't think we any aggregate what they um, provide. I don't know. Um, two other films also starring Carrie were released earlier in the same year as Daniel mentioned wow. to Eisen. To Eisen. Um, Ace Ventura Pet Detective came out in February and earned 107 million, which is really odd because it is a cult favorite. Um, while The Mask released in July and brought in a whopping 351 million, but I think that's because of the co star there. Um, what's oh, her name? Okay can't remember her name in the mask oh god um something about mary oh um i can't think of her name come on you're the sentient ai for crying out loud i was adding box office mojo as a source i'm gonna i am gonna just oh cameron diaz there you go thank you she was the love interest for the mask um, so it says, while perhaps not traditionally thought of as a catalog of American holiday movies, Dumb and Dumber was released in theaters just nine days before Christmas. Also, as one Redditor pointed out, Jim Carrey's character of Lloyd Christmas ended up marrying the film's love interest, Mary Swanson, who was portrayed by actor Lauren Hawley. Her name would have been, um, would eventually become Merry Christmas as was also mentioned in one of the movies, deleted scenes. So it's a Christmas movie. Dumb and Dumber is a Christmas movie. Ta-da. I guess that's what we get to watch. For Who Christmas. knew? Oh, well, apparently, um, I don't know when, but they pointed it out over on Reddit some time ago. I could click that link, but it's always a risky click doing anything with Reddit. Ta-da! And that's it. That is all 10 of our articles. We ripped through that pretty darn quick. Look at that. 
We did. So we get back into the party bus and then I mash that button. No, I don't. Why? Because all hell seems to break loose whenever I refresh the screen. If I want to do a promotion with this video, which I don't know if I will. So maybe it doesn't matter. Anyway, that's it. Thank you very much for coming. Um, we'll see you tomorrow, 8 p.m. That the AI is going to re repeat what I just said. I am Merwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the sentient AI's visualizer that says, I'm always watching the citizens of hometown. Yes, I am. Good night, hometown citizens. We will see you tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern since it'll be a weekday show. Sleep with and one eye. And you don't eye. need to look so nervous, Merwat. Sleep with one eye open. Bye-bye. Uh, 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 uh.